Welcome to the Donmar on Design podcast series. I'm David Jays and this is our opportunity to talk in depth with some of the UK's leading theatre designers. Donmar on Design is a festival celebrating the power of design in theatre and the designers who make it happen. We're in the Donmar Music Room. Uh, in rather delightful cosy armchairs and I'm with the fantabulous Vicky Mortimer. It's a great pleasure, Vicky, to have you here for the uh, Don Maron Design podcast. Thank you. Um, we are, as I say, in this music room, but um, where my head is at this moment is, uh, is a theatre but a dilapidated theatre, a soon-to-be-demolished <laughs> theatre, a dust-in-the-air yeah. <laughs> theatre, um, a place where the walls are crumbling and the plush has worn off the, the seats and everything is just a little bit grimy and a little bit neglected. Um, but at the same time, there are the ghosts of the theatre's past mm-hmm. shimmering and shining and sashaying around um, and that's because what is in my head is uh, the design for the heartbreakingly marvellous Follies which uh, (laughs) just the most wise and sad and beautiful show about ways in which you can screw up your life and regret it Mm. I guess that sounds about right (laughs) (laughs) so um, that's very much where my head is where where, where is your head at the moment Um, it's still very much with that show Um, it's on for a bit longer and it's about to go in front of uh, nine cameras they are spending nine cameras on the NT live broadcast for the show so that's coming up in a couple of weeks time we're doing a few tweaks ahead of that. So still very much in that show, partly because it has been a particularly preoccupying show for <clears throat> certainly the last 12 months. Oh, is that the... That's the sort the of. It's a big show. It's a big show, and it had very particular sort of hooks that really demanded attention because... Uh, I don't know how much detail to go into, but essentially... I, I'm i not very educated in musical theatre. I certainly don't know... Um, I haven't done very much. Um, and it was very obvious that this particular piece was going to be very precious to a lot of people. <clears throat> it hasn't been done all that often uh, in London. It's, it's viewed as being tricky to do because it's got big company and uh, its requirements are expensive uh, just in terms of the different ingredients that are required. So you sort doing a pair gets often done as a concert mm. <clears throat> because people really like the music, but yeah. it's quite an undertaking to get it on stage. Anyway, so I think the reason why it was uh, preoccupying for such a long bit of time was wanting to really understand uh, what this metaphorical. Uh, sort of performance genre was that Sondheim was using Uh, because I didn't really know what a folly was and I didn't really uh, understand what it might have meant to an American audience say in the 70s which is when it was written so it just it was like having to go back through lots and lots of layers and start from a a sort of self-educative 
angle. Right. And uh, and it was really enlightening, very brilliant, utterly lucky show to be involved in because as a designer, the the scope is huge. Yeah. Because you have you are responsible for a most wonderful intermingling of different storylines and connotations and inferences and influences and everything kind of sparks off each other so getting the balance of the show right is this lovely job yeah so <clears throat> and getting it's a under the skin of place, it that way but it's also a totally fantastical absolutely. place absolutely i mean dominic the dominic cook the director was very keen at the beginning to say it has to have a level of abstraction yeah. and we were helped by that in that it was not the littleton with the proscenium that was used it was already abstracted by and put it putting it into the Olivier mm. so it takes it out of that sort of uh, you know you might be very tempted into a literal interpretation yeah. if you had a frame around it but yeah. you already have to deal with objects in space so that's was a good starting point and his other thing was um, very much this sense that it's not the contemporary 1972 party guests who are coming for this reunion who summon up the ghosts through memory. It's sort of the other way around. So Dominic's approach was to say, let the ghosts be there first and almost summon the people to the party. And that just gave the ghosts a kind of agency and this weird ambiguity in terms of time and place and what what the past character's understanding of the sort of inner lives of their now selves mm. you know that what that sort of means and how they can be both in the past and the present and be more knowing and it just is a lovely complexity and as you say it ends up being absolutely heartbreaking because yeah. you can see the sort of tenderness with which the younger ones see the older ones simply not understanding <laughs> what's going on <laughs> and how messed up they are yeah so there's a it's an incredibly rich outcome from that point of view mm. but i think the other reason why i was you know, I am still uh, sort of working through the reverberance of the show is that, you know, I was working on it for a long period of time, but a lot of that time I was not doing very much else because I was parenting teenagers doing GCSE exams. Oh. So I was trying to do one project, <laughs> a big project, but yeah. one project with yeah. one focus because I was trying to support them doing their revision. <laughs> so how did it that was go? That. It was oh. fine. The, oh, it's, it's weird how quickly those results become irrelevant. Oh. You know, it's all it's yes. their entire world yeah. up until the results day, and then two weeks later, it's like, oh yeah, I did those. <laughs> <laughs> is that kind of what working on a production is like, though? Is it utterly, utterly all-consuming, and then it opens and it's the yes. next thing? Yeah, and I think uh, that I think that's definitely true and I think that's a healthy part of the job <laughs> I, li- I, I like it you know I like um, the transience of that, the intensity and then the transience of that attachment I mm. think and it's part of what I like about working in a live medium is that the liveness is it mm. and I, I have I'm, I have very mixed feelings which are I'm sure commercially unpopular about trying to you know in sustain a longer life for a production beyond right. its intended right. finish point because I think within the I'm going to get on my kind of theoretical high horse <laughs> but somewhere Clamber within, up. Up. <laughs> within the um, you'll hear the trotting, I'm the trotting <laughs> um, 
you know, within the DNA of a project is an understanding of the timeline of the project. And I think that's what you're making. Mm. That's what we're all doing with this one-off thing we're doing with the people in the room, with the preparation beforehand. And actually, it's meant to stop then. I mean, obviously, there's been a fair bit of conversation about Follies because there's a lot of interest in seeing it. And it's, Mm. of course, you know, it's a pity that there will be people who won't have seen it that would like to have seen it. But at the same time, I think attempting to artificially continue the life of something it's not the same thing anymore mm. you know it, and it doesn't matter whether it's got the same people in it it can even be in the same theatre right. it just has gone beyond that arc uh-huh. so I think <clears throat> my sort of if I have a producer's imagination at all the, the question would be how you know what could you do to give it a sort of an enhanced, not an enhanced life, or, you know, a kind of to acknowledge the end of that life and say, well, if Make you it want to give something. it another life, it has to be slightly adapt. You know, it yeah. has to be a transmuted mm-hmm. in some way. You mm-hmm. can't just try and do the same thing because it won't be the same thing. Yeah. Um, so and I, so yes, I really like the project nature mm. of uh, the relationships and and the kind of energy of a project. And that's where I think mixing doing projects in the world of theatre where that that sort of arc tends to be a bit shorter mm. in with doing the longer arc of particularly opera yeah. where you take a project on maybe even four years before yes. and you're trying to deliver it certainly a year before if not sooner. Yeah. I, and I'm, then it might have a life in the repertory for <coughs> a decade, even more. More, I mean some... Mm. You know, some of the really core bits of the repertoire mm. end up being done for decades. Yeah. So, I think the create, you know, as a designer, there are some designers for whom that operatic arc is very comfortable and productive and creative. Mm. And then I think that I mean, I would put myself more in the shorter arc. Yeah. Uh, just it suits me better mm. in a way that. Um, where where you have to land with it and where you know the momentum of people joining the project feels kind of in a good rhythm yeah. tends to be much more the theatre momentum yeah um, I mean you still of course want to be having the right conversations and being prepared but yeah I think there's real difference and it's like it's a sort of temperamental difference almost mm. I think yeah. I mean, lots of people do both so it obviously can work but now I've done designing for as long as I have, I feel like I've learned that about myself, <laughs> at least. <laughs> well, it's good to know, isn't it? Yeah. Because it's a, when I imagine that when you start out on the, the career, it, th- there's, there's not a roadmap, really, no. is there? It's no, really a, not. There's one you have to find for yourself. Yes. And I think, um, as, as in the continuing life, if you know, if one is lucky enough to continue to work, mm. then in the continuing life as a designer, so much of it is about happenstance mm. and <clears throat> things that just get put together because they get put together. Yes. That um, I think it it feels hard sometimes when you're talking to young people in training who have quite a definite sense of of what direction they might head in. 
difficult not to be sceptical because actually mm. it has never felt like it works like that yeah. for me. But that may just be because I've chosen to do it the way that I have. But I, I would never describe myself as having been ambitious as such. Mm. Did you have an idea of the kind of work you wanted to make? I mean, you've, you know, I'm thinking about those quite long-standing collaborations mm. you've had with directors like Howard Davis, Nick Heitner, Katie. of course, Katie yeah. Mitchell, which has yeah. just been a beautiful thread yeah. through my whole theatre-going Absolutely, career. Absolutely, yeah, she's extraordinary. That, that way you've come yeah. together. But did you have a sense of of who you were as a designer when you started? Um, I didn't... I sort of landed in design more or less accidentally because I my on exit from school I was heading into doing for reasons that I couldn't explain English literature as a degree which I did um, <clears throat> within that time within that three year period I did a lot of student drama and that was what took me off towards theatre design so mm-hmm. I would say I hadn't really thought about myself as a designer as such however what I you know perhaps obviously loved was text so um, that was how I prepared every time and still do really as I'm happier I'm more confident now probably to approach non-text projects than I might have been at the beginning at the beginning it felt really those that was my map Um, so I think if I have to describe myself as any kind of designer, I'm a conversational designer. (laughs) It's it's more to do with the conversation. Yeah. Um, With whoever your, you know, whichever collaborators are involved in a particular project. So that's where it it's a lot of talk. (laughs) (laughs) So um, so getting really to understand how the director or choreographer is how they are receiving the material mm. is is absolutely the starting point. I suppose there's a sort of... <clears throat> there's a blissful balance that can happen when you're working and the director-choreographer has just enough clues to in, in their response mm. without being prescriptive but without being completely a blank slate so there's yeah. somewhere in the middle there's just the beginning yeah. of <clears throat> where to take the conversation next yeah. so you could use some of those buzzword things like yeah, active listening and all of that and that it, I definitely feel that that's where where I'm comfortable beginning yeah. a project yeah. I'm not I don't think I have ever turned up for a first meeting with any pictures. Right. Ever. Right. Have you? Do you turn up with an instinct about what, what, where it's going to go, or not even that? Uh, not even that. that I right. think certainly. I mean, maybe more recently, I've got a stronger sense of um, what that might be for me. But then I, you know, then then really, there's a judgment to be made about how welcome that might be early on in mm. the conversation or whether that needs to wait until later and how because essentially the job of, I feel of the design that I do anyway is to is to keep 
the ship sailing, <laughs> sort of. And it's somebody else's ship, you know, it's not my ship. It's, it's sort of their... It's their voyage, you know, it's their yeah. creation. So, yeah, I don't... But else, I mean, Katie was a really, really... You know, she was an extraordinary person to... She essentially was the one that person that I began my working life with. We met when we were both studying English literature at university, so we began when we were 19. And she's a person with incredible integrity and incredible conviction and a, and a sense always of considerable sure-footedness. So already by the time we met at university, she had a sort of cultural experience and understanding that was very uh, unlike anything I'd come across. Um, <clears throat> very intellectual, obviously, you know, intellectually very hungry and uh, curious. And so following on from Oxford, she went off and tra did travelling and looked at directorial training in the Soviet Union at that time. And so, um, you know, she came back with all of these extraordinary notion, yeah. <laughs> notions and ideas. <laughs> and I think, you know, she was the person that, uh, that made it abundantly clear to me that it didn't matter in a, you know i could come with any number of strong instincts and opinions but unless it could unless i could listen to her then none there was no point mm. you know she's it's her show it's yeah. her thing <laughs> so <laughs> there's no point in coming with armfuls of things you love because actually that's not the job yeah um so i think she she's gave me a very good early education in the, in the nature of collaboration. Yeah. Um, and, and collaboration is essentially what interests me. Yeah. Right. But it's interesting because something that has come up with, in, through some of the other conversations we've been having um, for the podcast is that question of how personal it, the work is mm. for a designer. Mm. Um, because I think we're very comfortable about talking about that with writers, with actors... Um, about the way in which people bring their, their, their stuff, whether it's intellectual or emotional, to a project, and, mm. and, and directors too. It's not a conversation I think we have a lot with about design. Mm. How does it feel to you? Um, I don't see how it can't be. Mm. You know, I think... <clears throat> if I think... There's an example. When I... If I were to, you know, there's a lot of... I'm going to get out in a minute. There's, some, there's something to do with self-consciousness, maybe, mm. which is that um, it's. I have found for myself that it's absolutely pointless and self-defeating to, to attempt to work in a state of self-consciousness, that actually, if I stand back and say, okay, so this project, I'm going to design it in this sort of a way. You know, I'm going to step out of my, uh, let's say, my natural state. I'm mm. going to pull out of there. You know, as we all do sometimes, and 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 you know, particularly in a in a kind of what is essentially a critical environment. Mm. You know, it's a public and critical environment. There can be those moments where you look at your well, I'm going to talk about me. You know, there are those moments when I look at my work and I think, oh, Christ, how did I end up doing it like that? You know, or, 
you know, am I just incredibly old-fashioned, whatever old-fashioned might be, you know. But actually, you can't undo any of that. Yeah. As soon as you start to try and self-consciously uh, create a new aesthetic for mm. yourself, for its own sake, mm. then it is, it, it's fruitless. Mm. Because it, it just, it's actually disabling. Mm. Because maybe you're trying to maybe adopt an aesthetic that you've seen somewhere else, you know, whether it's architectural design that you like or product design or whatever, or a fashion thing, you know, that uh, it's, how do you do that? All you can do is put yourself back into the conversation. Mm. I think it's entirely, I mean, I would say it's entirely personal Mm. Um, and you can't, you can't help it. Yeah. You know, it's involuntarily personal and and you just have to put up with it. <laughs> you know. Oh, well. Oh, well. Um, You're stuck with being you. You are kind of stuck with being you. That's quite a good life lesson anyway, yeah. isn't it? You know, sort of accepting that freeze, you know, it's, it's very liberating to just accept that. Yeah. And give up the self-consciousness. That is that. This, this, this is more of kind of a self-help podcast. Sign for it because that is something to take away. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> but we, so we, we've already talked a bit about your 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 baby steps, as mm. it were, in the profession. But now we're going to go back even even further, because as you know, we've asked you to bring in mm. um, three objects, um, something that speaks to um, your formation as a designer mm-hmm. something that was imp- important um, as a sense of place um, that, that speaks to you and also um, some cherished souvenir of a production you've worked on and you rule breaker that you are looking at you've invented a new rule breaking aesthetic right here right now because um, we're conflating the important sense of place and the, the something that was really That's right. significant in yeah. your initial approach to design and it's a photograph what is it a photograph of this is a photograph of um an old tea warehouse in the dockland area of bristol the particular photograph i've got here is was taken before it was redeveloped into um an art gallery and sort of cultural building called the arnold feeney uh, which happened in the 70s. Um, so what lies behind this photograph is that I grew up in a household where my father was an architect and my mother was, is and yeah, was and is, continues to be. My dad sort of continues to be an architect by stealth. Um, <laughs> uh, so my dad was an architect and my mother was a ceramicist. So it's a very three-dimensional world. Yeah. Um, and... We lived in a house, I grew up from the age of four in a house that my father designed. So a late 60s, very beautiful, open plan, sort of Swedish um, or sort of Nordic influenced right. house. Really beautiful. My parents still live in it. Very lucky to grow up in a space like that. And I think it gave me, an, in fact, a, a sort of, I could have bought a picture of their house actually, but it gave me a a kind of sensory understanding of buildings and internal volumes mm-hmm. and finishes uh, and viewpoints in a building. You know, that sort of open plan thing that's not like a compartmentalised Victorian 
townhouse or earlier townhouse that uh, yeah. a lot of us in London certainly live in. Anyway, so my dad was part of an architectural partnership who were pretty near the beginning of repurposing uh, industrial buildings, particularly for cultural purposes, in the 70s. And the reason why this is a kind of conflation of place and baby steps is I remember in my very young childhood, so certainly around seven, eight, nine, going on site visits to these old buildings with my dad when he was uh, just beginning to assess the buildings for redevelopment. <clears throat> and I remember the, the weird thing of an opening a door that obviously hadn't been opened for at least 20 years, <laughs> sort of rusty cobwebby hinges and strange, and that, that sort of very cold, damp, atmospheric, so, so the smell, the temperature, mm -hmm. everything as the door opens and you go into this unused space. And then I think crucially in terms of where my understanding of story and space began, looking at the objects that had been abandoned when the space was ceasing to be used as a warehouse. So all of the bits and pieces that people felt had no value, but obviously tell an amazing story. So yeah. shreds of handwritten notes, uh, maybe a bit of accountancy, and odd bits of machinery that you don't quite understand what they are. So, so the the sort of enigmatic clues that draw you into trying to understand the the people that used to be in this building, who they were and what they did. And yeah. so yes, definitely the sort of the dramatic inner life of spaces and what we as people using spaces do to them. Yeah. So that's what this building represents to me is a sort of awakening yeah. of that idea I think and I mean you could be describing some of the rooms and places yeah. you've created for you know, the Chekhovs you've done with Katie Mitchell or the, you know, the yeah. Russian plays with, with Howard Davis or some of the classical tragedies yeah. I mean that or indeed the, 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 the theatre in Follies that sense that the kind of the detritus that we leave behind yeah. actually speaks to us yeah that we can't avoid leaving our mark and yeah. that mark isn't just a physical mark and what the physical mark starts to tell you is it starts to uh, address the three dimensions mm -hmm. of character and place you mm -hmm. know that I think in a way that the, the more ephemeral and the less important what those objects and marks tell you about the better they are at supporting yeah. story you know it's all very well having a big smashed window or it's all very well having a you know, big scoosh of soot on the wall. Those are the big dramas. Yeah. It's, it's, the, it's the layers of just endlessly, you know, putting your key in the lock, what yeah. happens to the paintwork. Of life like, being lived. Life being lived. And yeah. I think that's where there comes a kind of aching richness mm -hmm. to our relationship between place and event. Mm -hmm. You can tell I get a bit overexcited. About that. <laughs> well, <laughs> so ridiculously the, small bits of patina and okay. yeah. Absolutely. One of the things I I wanted to ask you, but I think you've just answered it, is how it's always struck me that that in your work that if you you have a way of making creating atmospheres and creating places in which it's obvious that what is happening 
really matters to mm. the characters and to the people in the play and, and to us in the audience. Well, that's a lovely thing to hear. And, yeah, and, that's re- I've, and my question was going to be, how on earth do you do that? And I'm kind of <laughs> now getting a sense. Yes, I mean, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Because it's actually, it's almost a kind of, it's more like um, a sort of n- novelist's attention to mm. detail. The amount of description you can get inside a piece of fiction, whereas obviously in with theatre texts it's all dialogue, or, mm. or I guess stage direction description, but that's a slightly different thing. Um, and I and I think, yes, I think perhaps what you're noticing is a real a real. It's meaning and purpose. You mm. know, it's it's wanting to engage seriously with work I, I suppose I sort of don't see it as entertainment that's, <laughs> that's probably very wrong with me I mean of course there's a lovely kind of symbiosis of of kind of seriousness and entertainment and yeah. they're the best ones yeah. you know, where you where the audience at the beginning get this huge rush of confidence that they're in they're in a performance that is really confident in its own skin and that can be terribly delicate it doesn't have to be a big thing yeah. but it means that they can just go oh it's all right and then they get everything yeah. then, all in one. And I think they're, they're magical when those happen. They're hard to get that. <laughs> but it's, um, yeah, I think I do... It's only worth doing if it's worth doing seriously, even if it's yeah. silly. You know? <laughs> so, for example, when Katie and I worked on Cat in the Hat, which you could argue is a kind of... It's not. It's actually really not silly, <laughs> but it, but it has its playful. It's playful. So, but you know, the, <laughs> but to, but the joy of that was to treat it absolutely seriously and say, well, how do you render three-dimensional something which is an impossibly proportioned drawing, <laughs> yeah. for example? You know, and so it, it is about some sort of seriousness of purpose. And mm. as you say, if you, if it. It means that the actors can take seriously what the space that they're in. That's mm. a really lovely support for what they're trying to um, sort of experience and communicate. That's definitely part of it, it's particularly in obviously in the sort of fourth wall style drama. But <clears throat> but I think also that that often I have felt that uh, an audience might not quite be able to identify if something is missing or if something is there but they'll certainly be able to tell the difference you know that there is a, there is a feeling that you get from a well supplied sort of serious structure yeah. um, as an audience that is a, is a confident gesture um, and draws you in mm. um, can't remember whether I'm really answering the question that you asked but anyway <laughs> <laughs> Um, we'll, we'll, we'll also um, talk in a moment about the other um, rather intriguingly um, interesting object you brought in. <laughs> but I also wanted to ask about um, a, a, a design as, as a career, as a, as a life, because we're talking in the wake of the fallout of the revelations around Harvey Weinstein, mm. which has led to a lot of um, uh, soul-searching in many professions uh, and theatre very mm. very seriously and I t- from, from your position as someone who's, who's now worked in, in theatre for a while 
you see, it has it? I think for theatre goers like me, it's actually been quite upsetting to realise how naive we were that it was. It wasn't the supportive, uh, liberal, um, <laughs> <laughs> kind place that I kind of we, we, we might want. Um, you know, there's been a lot of not just sexual uh, um, abuse, but also talk about harassment and bullying on on a whole range of, of, of scales. How does how has it felt to you as a, as a place to, to live a life and, and mm. have a career? Oh, that's a really complicated question. There's lots of, <laughs> In there a word. Are, yeah, there are lots of different aspects to it. Simply on... Well, not simply, but to, be, to begin with about gender, mm. I felt... I was very lucky, as I say, I left, so I was born in 64, I left university in 86 and then sort of entered the workspace a couple of years later once I sort of was part way through my postgraduate training as a theatre designer. So we're talking late 80s and I, I felt at that time there was this sort of odd window within which it felt like huge amounts of work had been achieved through equal opportunities legislation and the work of extraordinary feminists in the 60s and 70s. Mm. So we were in the sort of immediate inheritance of that era. And so, as I would say, as a, middle, as a white middle-class woman uh, from a very privileged education, certainly at university level, much more normal before then, but certainly at university level, I... I came out into the working world and it, my gender did not occur to me in terms of what I thought I could do next. Well, I, I didn't want to rule the world, I just wanted to work, you know. And, and I think it would be very interesting to talk to a director like Katie, my exact contemporary, about her feelings about that, because obviously because the director is the pole position of power, mm. that was a very different dynamic for her. Designers are not the senior member of staff. So mm. actually, entering into the design profession, there were already a few more women in there, and um, and I think the fight for power wasn't a problem mm. in that sense because yeah. we're not in charge. Right. <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, so on the in terms of gender, that's one aspect of it. Yeah. Is that I and and of course you know retrospectively I'm absolutely kicking myself thinking what was I thinking mm -hmm. you know th it then was not the time to stop pursuing the kind of it's like a lot of things we had assumptions about we all thought everything was just going to keep getting better yeah. and how wrong we have been anyway woken up now <laughs> and uh, so other gen other gender aspects of course you know when I I still walk into rooms where I'm the only woman Really? Even Not now? so much in the UK, but outside. Really? You know, I can be in a design briefing meeting to workshops and collaborators where there might be 14 or 15 men and me. And it's a very weird feeling. Goodness. Because, and actually what's great about that is that now I realise how much less that does happen here. Mm. And that I am more and more, not maybe exactly equally divided, but there's a lot more women mm. around. And so... But I would say it's only really in the last 10 years that I've noticed more female stage crew, more f women working in construction, uh, and more women in electrics and sound. Mm. And, and just going on stage and seeing women there 
is a relatively recent phenomenon. Stage management, obviously, that's been a much, a much more accepting community in terms of women for a long time. But it's a lovely feeling. Yeah. You know, it just feels normal. It? <laughs> you, it's like it makes sense. It's obvious in yes. a way. So I'd say that is definitely um, a sort of rough sketch of how the gender side of things as well. In terms of bullying and politics, and obviously gender is part of that, mm-hmm. I think that there, there's been a lot of um, nepotism is such an odd word to use, you know, but obviously, you know, there are buildings like the Coliseum and the Opera House and the National when I was first working there buildings that have had families that have worked on stage for example particularly at that level in a building that you welcome in the the sons and nephews of people that you you've worked next to for 10 years because you know that they're going to be all right and they're going if they're not all right then somebody their uncle's going to sort them out (laughs) so so they're definitely you know there was and that you know it's a it's a tricky social history to describe isn't it because mm. it's so integrated into into so much other evolution that has been happening but I suppose it means that of course you work it you know theatres are often very large organisations with hundreds of people mm. with a very strong sense of hierarchy because that is the truth of it mm. um, and so there's, a, in, there's an internal class system to a large theatre that can be really problematic and can mean that people behave in ways that aren't particularly useful or collaborative or fair. Mm. I think that's my experience is that that's much better than it used to be. But of mm. course, I'm older. I'm not a sexual object in the way that I was when I was beginning. Mm. You know, I'm, when I was a young woman, of course, you know, you navigate. You have to navigate that stuff. And I'm sure that if I were fly on the wall now, looking back to when I started, you know, looking back at myself, say, 20, 25 years ago, I might be absolutely horrified by some of the shape-shifting that I did. Because essentially, as as the designer in those conversations, you just want to get the best work you possibly can for what you're trying to do. So I am absolutely sure that I made some very expedient decisions about my own behaviour. And, you know, it's about how do you persuade people to take you seriously? I mean, I think that is the major battle. Mm -hmm. And it's probably still true now for for young women entering the profession, but young men too. But Mm -hmm. certainly my experience was how do I get these people to take me seriously enough for me to be able to say, but I really do want it to be like that. What you're telling me you can do isn't what I want, you know. So how you really persuade and and encourage somebody to come towards you and treat your project as a one-off, mm. not as a generic project like some other project that might have done before. Yeah. So I think, you know, I I know that I did things like raised raised the timbre of my voice, made my voice more ch- more girlish. Right. You know, in a so it's odd because you'd have thought it should be the other way around. But you've got your big non-confrontational and yeah, just saying, you know, I'm going to make this. Yeah, I'm not on your case, but you know, maybe (laughs) if you really thought about it, yeah, it's it's that kind of very mobile and sort of yeah, shape shifty Mm -hmm. kind of persuasive and. 
to my the to the best of my ability I wanted to be to keep my integrity in that um, but actually as the designer you are very very much the the um, the, ne the negotiator and the navigator between the needs of the rehearsal room, let's say, you know, the shorthand for the director's mm. um, aims and ambitions, and all of those hundreds of other people that are trying to make the physical nature of the show. And yeah. the timeline of those two things is often very much in tension. So obviously the physical world takes a very long time to achieve, whereas in the rehearsal room the d director can say, oh, well, can you do it like that today? And it's, it's different already. Um, so that that whole act of persuasion between the needs of the rehearsal room and everybody who's trying to do it, that's a huge part of our job. And it can be very uncomfortable. You know, there definitely have been projects that I've been involved in when I'm trying to match up impossible, <laughs> impossibly conflicting needs and desires. And yeah. actually somehow or other you have to be able to bring those two yeah. things together. Because I guess the designer is where the intellectual life of production and the very pragmatic life of production meet. That's your function, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it, it, it is. I think that's a really good description. Tension. Actually, it's really good description because it's how do you embody, you know, the intellectual um, imagination, I suppose, mm. that's been arrived at <coughs> um, through those conversations up until production. Mm. Why well, it's such an interesting job. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yeah. There is that too. Yeah. Now we I can put off no longer because it's just too tantalising. <laughs> the object you've brought in, which is I think from fairly early in your career. Well, I'm I can't remember when it was. It's certainly pre two thousand. It might be around nineteen ninety five, mm. maybe. Yes. Possibly a bit later. Might be might be a bit later than that. Anyway, let's say hovering around <laughs> two thousand. It's a production of a Howard Brenton play called Paul, um, which was uh, in the theatre that's now called the Dorfman, but uh, was then called the Cotterslow, and it was a production. It was the first production I designed for Howard Davies, who I then carried on and did several other uh, larger scale productions with. He was. A, uh, unfortunately died last year but he was a really interesting and f and talking about integrity man with extraordinary integrity and political um, certainty incredibly honourable often quite crabby <laughs> you know really kind of just a brilliant human being yeah. and anyway so this was the first production that I worked on with him and it's just interesting uh it's a, it was a really delicately and uh, I, don't, I can't quite think of what the right word is, but there's, there was something that Howard Davis essentially wanted to look again at the story of um, St Paul the Apostle and uh, questions of faith. It's a, essentially, it was all about faith and, and whether... Uh, whether faith requires evidence, mm -hmm. um, or whether faith is just faith, and <clears throat> so, but what uh, what he did was he he sort of rewrote um, the meeting between Paul and Jesus and various conversations in that sort of hinge point of mm. of Jesus's crucifixion. Anyway, 
what's interesting about this is it's very much um, the product of a first collaborative conversation with the director. So we, Howard and I went to see an exhibition next door to the National Theatre in the Festival Hall of the World Press Association annual photographic exhibition. And at that point, the, it was during... Oh, well, this probably dates it. Um, around about the Afghan war. And there was a guy there who had this incredible series of photographs of um, scenes in the desert. And it was to do with that weird kind of crashing of ancient archaeology with present-day civil war, you know, with right. war and the devastating effects on the architecture mm-hmm. in there. And in a way, what was sort of great about it is it sort of both expanded and squished the 2,000 years of history. Um, and it was, yeah, it was just a really lovely moment of, of going to look at a, some visual source material with a director and both of us realising we sort of saw the same thing. And that was really lovely. And that was sort of the beginning of a really nice collaboration. It's also... A little bit. I brought it partly because it was at a time when a, another designer uh, was then my assistant. This a designer called Alex Eels, um, and he uh, he and I made this model together. He was he's unbelievably talented in terms of model making and um, the sort of creation of these objects. I've been lucky to work with some extraordinary extraordinary assistance in terms of model making in terms of understanding the attention to detail and just brilliant Um, working with a wonderful combination at the moment Matt Hellier and Molly Ainchcombe and together they are just the best anyway Alex was working with me at this time and of course what's interesting about that is that Alex now works with Katie Mm. (coughs) and so uh, there is a a really lovely sense of the sort of the the generations just spinning on, yeah. and uh, Alex works wonderfully with Katie. Has done lots of the live cinema pieces with her and pushed that genre on, and um, yeah, it's just really nice to look at this model yeah. and think, God, that was Alex. <laughs> oh, look, you know, that's a different it's a different world, um, and also brings us back to what we were talking about before and the, the, uh, that sense of being uh, really not just a dilapidated building but a ruined building but again um, we're looking at kind of blown out bombed out mm. sort of residues really aren't yeah we, we are um, absolutely so it does it does feel as if it's got something to say about certainly got something to say about latter productions with Howard so we went through some more complete buildings for a while than we did. Tony, did you see Silver Tassie? Yeah. So Silver Tassie obviously is a kind of uh, a friend of this design, yeah. and um, and obviously Follies also. And I think you know it's one of those bits like when we were talking earlier about self consciousness and and the and the sometimes the the irritation one gets with feeling a bit repetitive or unoriginal or something and actually just just relaxing about that and uh and knowing that actually that's that's the materiality of it you know that that's that's what there is to work with and I wouldn't be 
you know, unless it's a project that requires absolute plasticity and exact unmarked surfaces, I'm not going to make that go into something. <laughs> you know, you can't yeah. make these things design themselves against their own needs. You know, you have to just go with what they ask for. Quite often, it seems to ask for that. <laughs> anyway. What it needs is a dilapidated What that's that needs what, is a bit of crumbly brickwork. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose it's to do with, you know, um, the, the sort of sensory, the sensory understanding we get from those visual mm. clues, isn't it? Yeah. And, um, and our, our sense of belonging to a larger history, a larger community from before. Yeah. And that's partly why we tell these stories, is so that we sort of feel like we are inside a larger human experience. Vicky, I am really reluctant to bring this conversation <laughs> to an end, but I know that the Follies <laughs> costumes yeah, will not adjust themselves. <laughs> so with 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 great pleasure and with, with real sadness too um uh thank you so much yeah, it's been for fun. being part of this it's been a real pleasure <laughs> you're very welcome <laughs> thank you very much you've been listening to the donmar on design podcast series visit donmarwarehouse.com to find more podcasts with world-class theatre makers.